Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. Today, I talk with Sean Kreshi, a product designer from Lucid. Today, we chat about the concept of Lean Startups MVP, and we openly discuss our qualms about it. And before you Lean Startup fans grab your torches and pitchforks, we also discuss what is so misunderstood about Lean Startups MVP framework. So have some solace in that. Sean also shares a framework they use at Lucid to conceptualize small experiments as an alternative to thinking in the MVP framework. This allows product teams to increase learning velocity while not compromising quality and the experience. So let's jump into it. Meet Sean. All right, Sean, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here, Caden. Yeah, we were supposed to meet in person. This is another coronavirus series of podcasts of... (laughs) Well, we're supposed to be in-person interviews. I think we both probably have enough toilet paper to you know, prevent us from actually getting the coronavirus. So should be good to go on that front. Oh, yeah. No, I, my wife, she had to wait in line at Costco and she got the last two boxes of diapers in my son's size. Oh, man. Let's re- turn around like resell it for like 10 times the price. But yeah, I've no. been trying to avoid Costco because it is a madhouse right now. Yeah, it is an unprecedented time, but we are going to be use this time to be productive and talk about a leveling up on product design. So how about, Sean, can you just introduce yourself to the listener, just talk about your path into product design and, you know, just what got you to Lucid and like what you guys are doing right now and to work on your design ops and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I'm Sean Qureshi. I'm originally from Texas. 
My career path was always headed towards medicine, and so that's really what I studied in college. I also had a, a major in business management just to be able to potentially take over my family's business. Graphic design was something I've always kind of done on the side, so it was kind of like a little, my little side hustle, and I have several different like realtor friends come up to me and say, like, hey, Sean, like, I need help with a, a flyer or um, some type of promotion, so... I began to start doing that a little bit more and more. And I began to see like, oh, like medicine is not only the way to help people. Like I can actually help people through design and solve like real world needs. And so kind of started to uh, shift more of my career towards graphic design. I moved out to Utah about two and a half years ago. And around that time, my first interaction was a product manager. And I was like, what is that? Like you guys seem to be doing some pretty cool stuff. Like help me understand what the product development world looks like. And that was really whenever I got introduced to user experience and I began to say, like, man, like this checks every one of my boxes of like, I've had a lot of different odd jobs over the years, but, you know, being able to tie in, you know, human behavior and psychology and graphic design and business. Um, so really, I began to start just trying to learn as much as possible. I think I cold messaged a, a bunch of people in the product hive community to be able to see if I could try to learn from them and understand like what UX looks like. So um, I've worked at um, freelancing for quite a while for several different companies, um, worked at a couple of tech companies and now over at Lucid. So what I'm doing at Lucid is actually the ways that our product is divided up into is one core experience and then two data add-ons. So um, on top of that, you have to be able to get some essentially um, an upgrade in that. And so Lucid Char essentially what it does is it allows people to see more, know more, do more. It's a visual productivity platform that allows people to be able to take a lot of complex ideas in their head and be able to um, articulate that and make sense, make sense of those different ideas for themselves as well as for other people. The niche that I work in is actually with salespeople. So salespeople oftentimes aren't going into Google and typing in, you know, software diagramming, but the things that they're trying to accomplish, our, our software actually does for them. And so I get to work in this really cool space where I get to work through um, Lucidchart, but also bridging that through a lot of other sales tools as well, too. So that's some of the stuff that we're working on. I can, I'm happy to dive in deeper. Yeah, okay. So you help salespeople close deals using Lucidchart. Absolutely. Yeah. And that world yeah. is very, very complex. And so <laughs> nothing that I was really familiar with prior to jumping into that, but lots of different moving parts, lots of different stakeholders. Oftentimes, um, especially with enterprise companies, they're not necessarily selling one-to-one, but oftentimes it's one-to-many. And so you're trying to be able to understand um, the political landscape of like, oh, like who are the decision makers? Who are the influencers? Who are people in here that will be able to help me sell my product into this actual organization? So the challenge um, with lots of other solutions out there right now is that Salesforce is really hard to um, make sense of and actually find relationships. And so it's just mostly think of like that in spreadsheets, but you can't actually be able to visualize some of those people and actually understand how they relate to each other. So the work that I do is um, essentially to be able to alleviate that pain and be able to help salespeople, as you said, close big deals faster. So before our interview, we talked about our qualms with the NVP minimum viable product way of thinking. So this is going to be a hot takes episode, but I, I hope that our reasoning will give at least sound like we thought about it before we <laughs> move away from like the whole lean startup methodology. When I was talking to you earlier, you talked about how Lucid, you, you as a design team, you guys are starting to, you know, level up, you know, go up in design maturity. You just got your boss just became like a, senior, a VP or something like that. And am I correct? Do I remember that correctly? 
So my boss is actually Taylor Palmer, who I'm sure lots of different listeners are. Awesome, dude. With, but yeah, he missed, he moved over from a UX manager over into a, a director position. But we also had a new SVP of product that joined the organization probably about four or five months ago. Yeah. So just really like, you know, organizational executive level design and you guys have been really working on, you know, design system and leveling up like your qualitative research. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Just talk about how you guys have been historically like a very like quant heavy org, how you're shifting more into like qualitative insights and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It's not to say that we haven't done qualitative data, but that's something that we're continuing to grow into. Lucid loves this A-B test, and um, we are very data-driven. That was one of the things that very much attracted me at Lucid, that it's not necessarily just based off of preference or what the trend is, but how are we trying to understand our users and uh, what are ways that we're making sure that we're moving metrics that matter? And the analogy that I almost have in everything, I'm not sure if you've seen that arm wrestling guy where he's pretty much like wrestling. Um, and just has this one giant bicep and the other one's really weak. So we're just essentially making sure that we're working out the other muscle. Not to say that it's weak, but it can definitely be able to grow and develop. So we're doing lots of new initiatives that's been um, really encouraging anywhere from things like where our SVP has recommended just a, a new way of kind of like thinking about our product development process and kind of giving us the vocabulary to be able to understand like, are we in the discovery phase? Are we in the validation phase? Are we in the execution phase? Like how is this cyclical? Really being able to take lots of different ideas and um, really try to be able to kill those things off so we're not really bloating our product to be a feature factory, but making sure that we're um, seeking to be able to use those qualitative approaches. Uh, one that we've actually established within the actual last uh, couple of weeks is something called SQUIRREL, which uh, is a fun little acronym, Spurl? but essentially is SQUIRREL. Uh-huh. SQUIRREL, yeah. like, like the rodent. Okay. Yeah, like the rodent, exactly. And so uh, that stands for Scalable quali- uh, Qualitative Research and Learning. And essentially what that means is that we've kind of automated working through a couple of different departments. So um, working with data analytics, working with lead and demand gen, but we essentially don't even have to do a whole lot of work to be able to um, jump into meetings that are already like pre-scheduled for us. So that way we could be able to focus on like, hey, what are the lowest fidelity kind of like things that we're thinking through and how do we be able to test those with users and um, not behind just a hot jar, not just behind um, a feature flag, but how do we do that in a way where we're constantly talking to users and that's informing our decisions. Yeah, so you guys are trying to have the kind of like that research train model where you're always doing uh, research, like talking to customers as much as possible. That's pretty cool. What did uh, one of your bosses say about the uh, MVP? Something. Yeah, absolutely. So nice MVP is definitely um, controversial for sure. So I'll, I'll go ahead and say that at the very beginning, but sometimes it can be like a swear word at least it, just to be able to make sure that we're not using that as an excuse to be able to um, ship a feature or, you know, ship out some type of like value, but never have a plan to be able to return to it. So regardless if you know, you're, I'm sure whether you worked with a product manager or worked with a client, worked with a contractor or worked with a stakeholder, I'm not sure if you've had that experience before where they're just like, well, look, no, no, this is just an MVP. Like we'll kind of get to it wherever. And then you look at the roadmap and like this, when are we returning back to it? But the ways that he has kind of phrased it is more so of, you know, what is the minimum amount of effort to be able to learn 
And uh, he uses this really cool cupcake analogy, um, cupcake model, which he's referenced from, I'm not sure who the actual original source of, but really be able to help me reframe the way that I view being able to learn and not just be able to think through what that first, first release is. Okay. So like the thinking of like the experience, like a cake, if it's like all nicely frosted and like has all the layers in place, sometimes like that's like representative of the ideal experience, right? It's just like this awesome cake. Mm-hmm. Yep. But instead of, well, and from what I'm learning, you know, is that the MVP was supposed to be the minimum learning experience, apparently in the lean of startup sense, but now it's turned into like the something that you build. Can you just dive a little bit deeper on like the cupcake analogy and like why you're thinking in the metaphor of like a cupcake instead of like a full cake? So if you think of a, think of like a three tier or actually in this case, maybe four tier kind of wedding cake. Um, and usually what you see in those like first base um, layer is, you know, functional. Uh, you might've seen like this graphic kind of floating around. The second tier is reliable. And so, you know, is it making sure that we're handling performance and that, you know, people can count on it as a software. Um, third one is usable. Like, you know, can people actually accomplish the task that they're trying to be able to um, set out to be able to do? And, and then the last one is delightful in the sense of like, all right, like now that we've kind of like built these other kind of like foundations, then we can kind of think of like, how do we, um, you know, create some delight? How do we add value to our, our customer to be on just the bare minimum? Um, and so rather than being able to build through these things, um, which oftentimes what we see is that lots of different startups and companies, and um, I think I've been guilty of this in some like contract work and everything is like, all right, how do I build out this like initial base? But you start then throwing that full thing out and you've dedicated um, a ton of time, ton of effort. Um, this is like several months and everything. And then you begin to put that in front of users and essentially it's a, it's a dry cake. Like there's no frosting, there's no filling, like it's very undesirable. And we're like, right, like you don't understand like how much effort I put into it. The cupcake model kind of like frames that a little bit differently in terms of like being able to slice that diagonally. And so rather than being able to build kind of like the foundations of functional, reliable, usable, and delightful, um, hopefully we're getting a slice of all those things together. And I think what, what happens, I'm not sure if you've seen like cooking shows and everything where they're like time blocks sometimes or like, all right, like build something and you've seen people like actually build out full cakes and stuff, but then you see other people um, build out cupcakes or even in practice, hopefully that's a, a good practice, but you begin to pick up on some smaller things. You begin to pick up on process, for example, like, like, oh man, like I didn't even get to the second layer where I need to add the filling where I needed a whisk and my kitchen doesn't have a whisk. And so you begin to see like maybe some technical breakdowns over there. You're hopefully trying to be able to put that in front of users a lot more quickly. And so, you know, you could build out this three tier cake, but then um, maybe the customer doesn't want vanilla. Like they hate vanilla and they're actually, you know, gluten in, uh, intolerant. And, you know, and so you could have probably understood that chocolate was a better way to go like way earlier on. So the, the idea of it is more so like, how do you be able to learn quicker through smaller kind of value increments and then use that to be able to then maybe build a birthday cake and then kind of go from there then to the finally the wedding or to your cake. So the cupcakes prototype, right? It's like more of like a, like an experiment. Yeah. And so the, the phrasing, which I kind of tend to stay away from MVP, just because there's lots of different confusion around it, but yeah, solution experimentation would be another way to be able to say it. Like the hope of it is that you are 
uh, being able to ideate, you're being able to maximize the speed of learning. And sometimes it doesn't have to just be that. It could be just a smaller like feature. Like it could be kind of like understanding, right? Like if we only launch this actual feature, like does it actually deliver value? Another popular one is in the sense of like uh, change it from like the cupcakes, but to the one that maybe other people have seen a little bit more commonly is the whole skateboard to car analogy. This idea of like, ultimately we could start to build a, a tire and then we could start to add a second tire and then we could build like the base of it. None of that is use, useful or usable for the customer. And so rather than doing that, like how do you be able to create something that's a little bit more value chunked and it's just a skateboard which handles problems like transportation. And then you begin to start picking up on other stuff. And I think the benefit of that too, is that you also can shorten that as well too. Like you might be kind of like exaggerating the hype of like how awesome this could be, um, but you might learn some things, you know, around the, uh, around this testing process of like, all right, maybe a skateboard is sufficient or maybe just a scooter is sufficient. We can kind of stop there. We probably don't need to be able to go to build a motorcycle because this person is actually only traveling within campus, within their school, as opposed to thinking that they're going to use it for, for everything. Um, I could also maybe talk about an example of like ones of like products I've seen that have done this a little bit more poorly where um, thinking about skateboards and scooters, uh, my mind kind of went to a Segway. I'm not sure if you remember that back in the day. Segway was a good example of a, a product that seeked to be able to build out a three-tier wedding cake and like have a ta-da, like, you know, reveal and people got to it and like expectations were already high. Uh, but <laughs> it was... I'm not understood as like what the problem that they're actually solving for. It was, you know, the sense of like just expensive is another one. Yeah, it was just one that like rather than like you see like Lime scooters or something like that, like, you know, they're kind of like addressing problems um, like, you know, where can I leave this thing? Like where can it be parked? And so like being able to have a, a quicker feedback loop like helps you be able to be more aware of some of those problems to be able to see like, all right, I can actually see uh, things that I need to be aware of and also understand the extent and the intensity of my users, users pain. So all of these experimentations that you guys are doing, these little cupcakes, you know, yeah, it's like understanding like, okay, what's the minimum amount of value we could create to validate that we've have desire in the market. This isn't like a fully QA'd like coded up product, right? This is just, like you aren't actually like building something that's part of your portfolio as a cupcake, right? Yeah. So there's different ways of thinking about it. Sometimes it does end up making into code. Um, so it just depends on the question of like, what are we trying to learn? But yes, I agree. Like hopefully that's the last, last way to be able to do it because that is very expensive. And so like, how do you be able to find cheaper, less riskier ways to do that? And so the idea of it is, yes, minimizing that risk and being able to do that through, you know, um, easier means that could be anywhere ranging from like paper prototyping. It could be anywhere from like Wizard of Oz kind of experimentations. It could be anything like concierge experimentations. You know, sometimes what we've actually allowed uh, engineers to be able to have more hackathon prototypes. And so uh, this idea of like, all right, like rather than having engineers create production level code, if there is something more complex that we need to be able to learn and figure out, um, we'll pull over engineers to be able to code something that's, they're not having to worry about like design system guidelines, but they're doing something in terms of like, hey, is this um, viable? Is this feasible? Um, and so we're trying to be able to understand some of those different interactions that we're looking through. So it can be coded, but most of the times that's the very last, last resort.
Yeah. Like this, yeah. I've noticed that, you know, historically like uh design and I think anyone following the MVP model thinks that they need to go to developers and tell them like, Hey, code this, we're going to experiment. And I found that um, whenever we think that way, and in my experience of when we do the whole like minimum viable product, like code something, QA it, put it in the wild to experiment, even though we spent thousands of dollars <laughs> to build that experiment is the, into thinking that like engineers just need to build whatever we want. And that lowers engineering morale. And that's why it's probably one of the reasons why I like engineers jump around the place. If they, if they're not happy with like how they're being told to make something that they know they're going to have to rework, but um, making like a functional prototype where you're like letting them be like, Hey, like I got this crazy idea. Do you want to build something to see if it will actually work is like a way better way than actually just building like a fully functioning feature. Just, first testing out the idea in, in code. Like, yeah, I fully agree. And it's surprising. Oftentimes, like, I think we have this, like, stigma of, like, oh, engineers don't want to be able to be a part of this process unless they know very clear requirements, they know exactly what they're building. But oftentimes, like, they have some of the best insights, and um, they're really being able to um, shape and influence the ways that our products are being built. And so we have lots of different, like, uh, we have a once a year actually like hackathon that you know people go crazy in terms of being able to build whatever they want and so it's kind of like a similar way of being able to have these mini hackathons where they're like all right like we have this idea like be part of the um, um, discovery be part of the validation be part of the solution here and so i'm kind of inviting him into the entire product development life cycle but in, in doing that um I, I was definitely surprised in terms of like how much excitement that engineers had to be able to be part of um, testing not to be able to only to ship code, but testing to be able to learn. And so once there's kind of an established understanding of that's really the outcome, as opposed to we're only pushing towards outputs, um, I think it's actually creates a, a really great team and a really great atmosphere. Oh, yeah. I think uh, your product, like your engineers make or break the product. And if they're not happy, I've noticed that engineers are totally willing to be creative. You just need to frame it right. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think even creativeness, I think that's not something that we have a monopoly over being designers, but oftentimes uh, I actually did like a, a coding boot camp on, you know, at Dev Mountain where I began to start thinking through like, right, um, being able to expand my freelance business and not only doing the ideation, but hopefully trying to do the execution. But the amount of creativity that was required to be able to like make things actually functional, like it gave me a lot greater empathy for that. And so, you know, the engineers I work with are much smarter than me and having to think through like creative ways to be able to actually make something functional. And so, yeah, all that say, I agree with what you're saying. Yeah. And then also for maybe more junior designers listening to this, like if you want to get an idea for like a good experience, you should t just talk to your engineers about like what you, what you can get away with. And if they know that like you're curious about like the limits you could push in the technology, they'll come to you and be like, Hey, did you know you could do this? And I'm like, Oh wow. Like I've been waiting for that idea this whole like quarter. I've been trying to solve this problem and you just gave me the one, two punch, you know? And yeah, it's just, they're, they're such like, they know how technology works. They know the limits. Like you should be getting a lot of your ideas for solutions from them. Really. No, absolutely. And 
I think we'd also understand like how much they're in the weeds of like some of these problems as well too. Oftentimes like my engineers will tap me on the shoulder and recognize like, hey, like this is only half baked. Like, you know, we need a couple of things over here. Like it's missing um, maybe like a, a certain state or something or a tool tip. And so um, they're being able to think through like a more holistic experience. And so I, I love to be able to see like them go into extra mile and really being able to design alongside me. We have something on our scrum team where they have like UX deputy badges that they kind of said that like they essentially self-proclaimed. And so it's been really fun for um, the designer not to be the only one that has the right answers because that's never the case. But um, how are we creating a culture where we're directionally moving in the right direction and that's cross-departmentally? Yeah, what I'm uh, noticing more. So, I mean, when that whole movement of like everyone's a designer and then like that caused a lot of controversy, like, oh, well then why do we have designers, you know? But like, that's not what people meant by everyone's a designer, that everyone's going to get into sketch and design screens and stuff. Like that's not the idea or like that they're going to like know how to do interaction design. Like interaction design is a, is a very robust profession craft that takes like years of practice. So that's not what I think that saying means that everyone's a designer. But I do think that everyone can be a creative technologist where they are creating novel solutions through technology together. And we just handle the human part as the the product designer. You know, we think about the human variables, but I mean, technology could be just as involved with the creative application of technology. I totally agree. Just because they don't know a certain tool doesn't mean they know, don't know how to use a whiteboard or a marker. And so hopefully that's, you know, where design is starting at. And oftentimes like that's really where um, the gold is at. Like, you know, we're oftentimes trying to be able to think through problems at the whiteboard level way before we kind of dive into, you know, the specific tool and everything. So um, yeah, all that's echo what you're saying of like using engineers as part of that process. I'm curious, what does that look like for, I guess, progressive leasing in terms of how are you guys working through y'all's product development lifecycle? How are you guys seeking to be able to, to learn, use your engineers? What methods are being able to minimize some of that expensive time of using engineers only to do production level code? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think there's a, a popular trend of involving the triad, like trio model based off like Marty Kagan's book, Inspired, where you have a product designer, a product manager, and a tech lead. And the team is empowered to work on outcomes, not features. So we've been doing like a complete like product org overhaul over here where there is eventually there's going to be one designer per product team. And so that everyone could focus on like one aspect of business problems and that we are given to start OKRs or objectives and key results from like, like an organization level. And then we make our own uh, team level OKRs and we just work towards outcomes together and solve solutions together. And we define the problems together. Historically, that hasn't always been the case there. A lot of times it's been very sales driven, but I think a lot of organizations historically have been sales driven. And now I'm noticing just with the companies I'm talking with, like the designers I'm talking with at different companies that, is more and more we're trying to work towards outcomes and experimenting not in the case of lean startup but more well i guess you know lean startups were very heavily misunderstood it is really more about experimentation and not like coding things to completion but yeah 
this is more like that, like making prototypes, learning as fast as possible. I guess it's not worrying as much about velocity of shipping either. It's more about velocity of learning is what's being, is more important, but it sounds similar to what Lucid's doing, but you know, Taylor's a pretty smart guy and other things that we're working on. Uh, we just launched the V1 of our design system, which is like a fully coded, like dev maintained design system. And then we have like a CMS and, we're getting to the point where if you change like one component in one place, it changes everywhere else in the product. That's pretty exciting. I heard that uh, Lucid's working, you're doing a lot of work at Lucid for design systems. Yeah, that's been um, really fun as well too. And so over the last few months, we've got to do an overhaul of our design system, which has definitely been a a cross-departmental effort and cross-team effort on the UX team. But uh, it's been really fun to be able to be part of, but yeah. lots of inconsistency within the product and you know really ultimately that hurts our users and so we took an audit of like what that looks like and to be able to understand like what softwares are we using how can we kind of consolidate those into um, a couple tools as opposed to like you know six to ten but yeah the hope of it's kind of what you're saying of being able to build that in a way that's modular you know componentized where um, once you're able to make sense of those things like you're able to reduce the cost of like engineers building like multiple different solutions to the same exact problem um and really being able to create more alignment within the organization so yeah it's been a lot of fun so how's y'all's uh, design system um you know being received what did that process look like for you guys it's definitely getting first release pains <laughs> uh, they're they're finding out like what the weaknesses are but it's been do- going pretty well it's been speeding up the process one thing I learned about design systems is it's not for designers, it's for developers. It's an internal product for developers for the exact reason we were talking about earlier is how can we quickly build functional prototypes or like functioning experiments without having to worry about spacing and buttons, color and stuff like that. Like we want it, we want like our developers to be able to just pull in from our like our pattern library like all the things they need to match spec and and then use like a continuous release process to quickly test stuff and that's kind of yeah it's been working pretty well it's it's definitely a lot more than like a pattern library yeah that makes sense it's always going to be evolving but yeah that increased um, efficiency for designers not having to think through spacing and developers not asking those questions as well too and um, having documentation that they can reference in terms of some of these problems, I think, um, is a step in the right direction. It's not to say design systems hopefully are never done. Like we're continuing to be able to um, not create something that's prescriptive or limits innovation and creativity, but we're able to help designers be able to think a little bit more deeply about the users, the interaction, and you know being able to focus on that usability and delight. So I've noticed that as companies move closer and closer to well-documented, defined design systems and really learning to optimize and make more efficient the building of software at organizations. What do you think designers should be using that free time for? Because it's going to free up the designer's time because they don't have to worry about spacing and all that stuff, right? What do you think designers and developers should be using that freed up time to, to... be productive. That makes sense. Yeah, 
Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, hopefully it goes back to um, the user. I think there's this misconception, you know, for in the design community, as well as for a lot of junior designers that they're like, oh, like the medium that I have is just my tool, whether that's Sketch or Figma, and I just need to be able to get really good at that. But um, those are just, once again, a means to an end, like the, the, the medium and the context that we should hopefully have is understanding users, understanding human behavior. And so it goes back to what we were originally talking about in the sense of qualitative and quantitative um, you know, ways of being able to test and do research and uh, make sure that we're minimizing the risk of building the wrong solution. It's not to say that we have to get it right on the first try, but we're moving in the right direction. So actually my SVP of engineering, he gave this really great analogy where I think he um, referenced it from like great by choice. It's a, it's a book, but he basically gives this uh, analogy that was really powerful for me. And it, it's similar to the cupcake model as well too. Um, but basically imagine, close your eyes, like picture, picture yourself at sea, um, but there's like a hostile ship coming over to you and like it's approaching your boat. And you know that you have like a limited amount of gunpowder and you could take that gunpowder and pretty much do that to be able to fire one big cannonball. And you recognize like, oh man, like that was, we shot it and it was 40 degrees off. And you could do that approach and that would be a poor product lifecycle development process of like, right, how do we do this ta-da? How do we um, just do this grand reveal? Um, but another way that we're kind of talking through is more so like, how do we be able to take some small shots? Maybe you take some of that gunpowder and you put in a rifle and take um, one bullet and you're like, oh, like I calibrated this, the, the wind's a little bit off, the distance is wrong. But the, the second that you start getting a hit, you begin to be recognized like, oh, like this is actually data like supporting like that we can actually take a grand shot over here. And you see lots of different products doing this as well too. I mean, the iPod for Apple was one example of like, right, this was only, I think in 2002, it was like 3% of like total sales, but that was like one bullet, one signal of like, right, maybe we're on to something here. I mean, you begin to see like, you know, people not necessarily wanting to just download like free music, but you begin to see like this cannonball of like the, the iTunes of like, all right, like you have this online streaming software. So kind of wrapping up like this sense of like, all right, like how do you be able to get signal and going back to your original question of what should designers be doing? Like we're constantly trying to disprove our hypothesis. We're constantly trying to disprove our assumptions and being able to use that time to be able to make sure that we're understanding the user as well as the product market, making sure that those fit. Yeah. So more and more like the product design role is less about making deliverables and specs. I think that's, as now that's like making stuff in sketch is such a small amount of your time as a designer, you're going to be doing qualitative and like quantitative work just to better understand the problem space and like looking for those leverage points to really make those big bets. Like you said, I think that's a luxury of having design system is like you get to take the time to think about those like small things that lead to big things. I totally agree. And I am curious, like what, what percentage of your time is, you know, actually in the software versus like outside of the software? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I have to think about that, but yeah, I, I, my personal methodology, like how I perceive myself is that, yeah, like my job is to minimize risk. It's not to make specs. I think the specs kind of fall into place once I've thought about the problem and connected enough dots that like, it's just like what the screen needs to look like and what needs to be on that screen just is there once I've uh, thought about a problem enough. So I think it's very, 
I, I would give a rough guess that maybe it's 10% of my 10 to 20% of my time. If I do my job right, I shouldn't be spending that much time in a sketch. I should be like, and then I, I'd say that another like up to like four, 50 or 40%, like on top of that sketch time is um, actually like user testing, um, doing field uh, research trips, you know, doing contextual inquiry, doing, I mean, you've heard of the book, like Universal Methods of Design, right? Like it's this purple book. That sounds familiar. Yeah, if you could talk about memory on that. Yeah, so it Universal Methods of Design. So there's uh, this one book, Universal Principles of Design, which is like that blue book. I think that's the more commonly known. It has like 100 design principles in it. Well, they the same people that made that made this book called Universal Methods of Design. And it has like 100 different ways that you could research and test and validate ideas and they're not it's not screen design it's it's really it's testing people's mental models it is looking at analytics and starting to draw, draw connections using design thinking um, exercises there's architecture for complex software problems i i'd say i'd spend most of my individual contributor time like up to 60 percent just not doing screens and actually like doing more like abductive reasoning like design thinking type stuff to like help make those connections and un, un, better understand the problem space and then i'd say like 50 to 100 percent is me trying to synthesize those ideas into digestible content that i could communicate those findings with uh, my counterparts like legal compliance risk like data science uh, product tech a big part of my job is like educating <laughs> what I've learned and and influencing prioritization and stuff like that. Well, what about you? Or do you have a follow-up question for that or? No, no, absolutely. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of like our listeners where, especially for like early junior designers that are trying to break into UX. So oftentimes like that's what seems to be emphasized. Like, right. If I can just master this tool, then surely that makes me a great designer. But I think you're on to something there in terms of like what the actual day to day looks like. And, um, yeah, my day is very similar where, you know, if I open up Figma or Sketch, uh, like it's very a small percentage of my time, at, at, you know, throughout the week. And each week varies just depending on where we're at in terms of project development, my life cycle with the epics that we're working on. But no, I totally agree in terms of like being able to master those very different methods. Yeah, are critical as well, too. Uh, I guess a follow up question that I have is which ones have you found to be effective? So to improve speed of learning i think is understanding like what kind of reasoning you're using right so like a mature design organization from a design perspective if you look at like envision's maturity model there's like those top two levels like the top level and which is like a like a very small minority of companies like design drive strategy and business strategy and then there's like level 4 companies that's like high maturity of uh, it, in what level four companies do is uh, scientific design, hypothesis driven design. So really like the main goal for all of your, your work as a designer is to have a testable hypothesis so that you could tie your work to business outcomes. And the, the quicker you can get to like a testable hypothesis, I think the quicker you could like learn, right? Because you, ha- you, yeah, you need to have a hypothesis. But there's like three types of thinking that I've like this framework that I've learned interviewing people and just on my own study. I mean, 
hypothesis driven design is great, but how you get to that hypothesis is more important. Going up in a level of abstraction, there's inductive reasoning, which is where it's you're you're establishing patterns and this is pretty common among like management types like you start seeing like macro trends and patterns that are like small like behaviors and analytics to come to the conclusion that leads to a hypothesis so inductive reasoning is actually generating the hypothesis but what sorry <clears throat> my throat's a little sore i might have a coronavirus i hope i hope so i want to get it over with but then how you how you establish and identify those patterns is like abductive reasoning is like the high level design thinking so this is like how designers solve problems is we use those visual like design thinking visual thinking exercises to get everything on the wall and start seeing patterns and uh, there's like a misnomer that they think you, people say that like Sherlock Holmes is a deductive reasoner not really. He's a more of an abductive reasoner. So abductive reasoning is taking like two seemingly separate things and making a logical leap that they're connected. And that's what leads to like the best hypotheses, right? And so getting really good at like using design thinking tools is like arrows in your quiver, not like just following like a predetermined process and like learning like what tools will help you answer the question you have. So you might like have like this macro trend that hey like why are people like leaving this website like what like the google analytics why are they dropping off here and then you you go into abductive reasoning and you like look at all the reasons like all the things that are happening around like this one page in the flow and then you realize like hey these something that hasn't been connected before like there's like these notifications that seem to be heavily influenced the experience on this page i'm going to go back and google google analytics so like you're jumping into like abductive reasoning territory and you're like, you're making these kind of big leaps and logical jumps to like make assumptions that these things are connected. And then you go back into inductive reasoning where you go into like the quant, you know, and Google analytics and you're like, how many times does this uh, notification get fired? And then you're like, Oh, 50% of the time. And that notification it has like an exit button <laughs> and uh, you know, it's, being able to get in the ambiguity, use design thinking methods, which are now being rebranded as like discovery methods because we want PMs and developers using these methods as well, right? So that you could start identifying like where you should focus your efforts in discovery. And it's really just about, and I know this is a very abstract and academic answer and I'm sure I'm like coming off as like uh, a person that hasn't really thought about this a lot, but for me, it's really inefficient in my opinion to just come up with hypotheses without actually doing like the footwork, the legwork through like design thinking and stuff like that to actually like come up with identify patterns that help you develop the best hypotheses so that you're only testing like a few good hypotheses instead of a bunch of like half-baked ones. And that's leads to a faster learning velocity in my experience. 
Wow, that was really long-winded. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) No, that's super good, though, at the same time. I I think you're right on. Oftentimes, we can come in with certain assumptions, but ignore the data that's very present to us. I mean, I think examples where we'll see, like, metric move of, oh, we see this um, download button over here going up crazy, but then why is the share button going down? And so, you know, it needs to be able to see what type of data are you gathering, how wide of a net is that there is going to be some intuition part of that to be able to see like there's there's missing holes here there's trends but then does that open up this other trend over here that we need to be able to somehow put together so i think that's really helpful to be able to think through um be able to use the data use the stakeholders that are at your disposals but a second point that you made there that i think is really helpful is like have a hypothesis in your testing Oftentimes, like, I'll see, like, you know, people coming in is like, hey, you know, to a user, like, do you like this? And, like, you know, what like, what are you hoping to gain out of that? You know, one thing that we use at Lucid, we kind of have the scripts and everything where we kind of think through different types of hypotheses and questions. And oftentimes the questions that we have, we're asking questions like, what are we seeking to be able to learn? You know, if a user answers in one way or the other, what is that signaling? How is that disproving our hypothesis? So, yeah, being very strategic and um, intentional and targeted. Yeah, because I mean, if you don't have like a well thought out hypothesis, because you know you need to ask those questions when someone's saying like, I did this research and 10 out of 10 users liked this prototype. And I'm like, okay, well, what were you measuring? What was your hypothesis? And then you kind of start asking like why or like how and what questions that kind of dig into their critical thinking process. And you're like, oh, okay, well, what were you trying to accomplish by putting that button here? What was your hypothesis? Oh, well, I put it here because I didn't want it because it was space constrained. And if like, if I moved it below this card, it would have been lost under the fold. And I'm like, I don't feel like that was like a really good like reasoning. <laughs> like if you're testing to see if like you could get away with some bad hierarchy, like then no, <laughs> like you didn't learn anything. No, that's yeah. super good. That And that kind of uh, makes me think, I mean, we are human. We do mm-hmm. have certain, you know, preferences and biases and we want to we have the need to be right if we're being honest. So what does that look like in terms of like protecting bias within our research? Yeah, I actually, I just watched the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson masterclass on scientific thinking and communication. Um, oh, super cool. Oh yeah. It, it, it's, I think anyone wanting to level up like the research game and like their approach to like learning about problems is just let's just take what scientists have like figured out in like the scientific process. It's just all about you research for the sake of finding objective truth and of finding the way things are. Like you're not you're not going into research to validate your hypothesis. You're going into research to just for the sake of learning and just being curious. And so he talked about biases. Like there's uh there's a couple biases biases. One is, you know, availability bias, which I think everyone knows is like you, you make decisions off what's available, which could be misleading. There's, you know, cognitive bias, which is like how you think about the world. I think the most dangerous one, especially as designers and, te- and well-paid technologists, I think that's another thing is that we, we're in a very different socioeconomic level than a lot of people is cultural bias and so in anthropology back in like imperialistic britain they had these like anthropologists you know the guys with like the mutton chops and stuff going to south america and like studying the indigenous people 
but they had this whole bias the whole time that they were superior than these people and it totally influenced their research and they're like oh wow these savages you know like i'm studying these savages and sometimes you know as uh you know technologists we have like the techno savior mentality and that's like a cultural bias that oh i'm a designer i solve problems i'm solving the problem for you and then that totally like shifts how your research goes right yeah, and I think it's important though, to be mindful of our bias. And I'm also curious in terms of what if you have maybe a passionate stakeholder that wants to see a certain feature or MVP kind of being pushed through? You know, what does that look like, and what are some maybe practical tips? Yeah, the I actually just talked with the DJ Green from Jane, and she talked about how when you're talk before you kick off any research, you need to like establish like a common understanding with stakeholders if like hey if i like you just need to ask them if they seem pretty passionate about it uh dj's like just ask her stakeholders if i okay is this going to happen no matter what i do (laughs) and if you know and she's like hey if you're the ceo you have the right to pet projects that's just going to change my approach to how i'm designing it right because if it's already a product priority and, you know, product managers are smart. They probably have done the work to understand that this is worth prioritizing. And, you know, as us as designers, we haven't seen it yet. We don't see the vision. Um, being able to change your research to like, okay, I'm going to, we're going to do this anyways. So I'm going to work, do everything within my power and skill set to minimize the risk. It's also just like nicer to be cooperative. I mean, instead of just saying like, no, you're wrong. Oh, you're off base. It's like, okay. You obviously like see something I don't, I'm going to suspend my disbelief and I'm going to do everything I can to like work with you to like reduce the risk and we'll see what happens. Like you might, and sometimes they're right. No, no, totally agree. And it's almost kind of UXing the the stakeholder process a little bit. One thing that, you know, some of my managers have told me in the past is really helpful is yeah, that, that level of candidness and being direct with some of those stakeholders, like you'll have different personalities in the room of like, Hey, they might seem super passionate about this project, but maybe they're just very opinionated. And you know, they're like, Oh, like actually, no, I just wanted to say that, but I don't really care. So it's like this whole sense of like strongly versus loosely held. And I think another framework that we oftentimes ask people that um, once we kind of get to a stalemate of like, all right, like, is this preference or is this performance? Like, are we really thinking through like usability of like really being able to add uh, true value to our users? Uh, or is this, you know, the color ver- like red versus blue or something? And so being able just to understand where people are at and what their concerns are is a good learning point for us to be able to make sure that we're mindful of considerations. But I like your approach about just really being able to be direct and just kind of ask them, um, you know, to Daniel's point of like, hey, like, is this going to get pushed out regardless of like what I'm seeking to be able to prove or disprove? Yeah, the, and one thing that I've noticed, because I think like the big stigma against MVP, there's, it's not that like there's anything wrong with like the concept of like lean startup MVP, because it really was about experimentation. It's just gone off the rails on like people misunderstanding it. I think it's just like the stigma that, I think we all have scar tissue where we ha- have had an experience where we pushed something that we knew was half-baked in the name of like, oh, well, let's just ship it and experiment. And I'm doing air quotes right now. Let's find out. But it's a lot more productive if someone is passionate about like an idea to be more curious and like, 
you know, question and listen instead of just jumping into debate. Because usually when you like uncover like their reasoning behind something, you're like, that's not a bad idea or you're not off base. And then like you start to get into more collaborative space because we just always assume that people like are not thinking about things and we're in tech. People are smart. <laughs> like, yeah, no, totally agree. And so being able to involve people and yeah, like uh, there was no intent of the podcast of just MVP of that's very controversial. It's very much misunderstood. Um, but I think there is ways of like us being, and this probably applies to different stages of companies now that I'm thinking about it. Like an MVP for a startup probably means something very different for an MVP within an actual like well-established company. But hopefully there's still this idea of like speed to be able to learn, but that viability is ultimately um, you know, will people pay for it? And oftentimes, like we, even though we know we're not the user, we tend to assume that we're the user. So being able to bring in, yes, stakeholders, um, I think is important because we'll see things of like, oh, we've tried that in the past and doesn't work over here, which I don't think that should stop us from still being able to explore because the environment back in those past days were probably different. Like the technology has probably changed since then. Um, You know, product market might have changed, but using that, but then hopefully broadening those circles out to end users of like, all right, like, well, other people uh, want to purchase this, like this whole sense of, um, does anyone want it and not building solutions to problems that don't actually exist? So the only other example I was going to reference was just MVPs in terms of like Dropbox, where you see an example of them, not necessarily dedicating a whole time. So this is more of a startup, spending time to be able to build out a full functional um software but they did a three minute video and they kind of like tested out that viability of like will people actually purchase this um and that was a good way for them to be able to test out that thing without writing a single line of code so i think in the spirit of mvp yeah hopefully it's the sense of like what hypothesis do we have and how do we be able to seek to learn and then start moving in that direction if we do see um, data leading us towards that direction yeah and what's the cheapest way to learn it it could be like a video tivo didn't even have a fully functioning product, but they recruited people using like a demo of someone pausing live TV. And everyone was like, this is crazy. Awesome. This is a great idea, but they didn't even have a product yet. Like validating a product idea doesn't always mean like build something and ship something. Right. It's just like, there's always, there's always cheaper ways to find out someone will pay for it. Right. So yeah. I think we're coming up on time. Thank you so much. I think I'd love to do like a follow-up episode once we start learning more and refining our ideas and maybe listening to this episode and we're like, oh, we're so wrong. (laughs) But yeah, I I really thank you for taking the time, even though we are all kind of in like a social taboo house arrest, not legally yet. Maybe we'll be listening to this in a couple of weeks. Yeah, hopefully we're not listening to this in a couple of weeks and being like, man, I wish we was still like that. We're, like everything's shut down in two weeks. But I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every uh, guest, and it's the time machine question. So if you had a time machine and you had the opportunity to go back and change something in your career that was going to influence the trajectory of your career, you know, something that you wish that you did when you started, what would you do? And you can't say that I wouldn't have changed anything because power corrupts people. And if you really had a time machine, you'd be, you'd get a little corrupted and go back and change stuff. So like, what, what would you change? No, that's a great question. Aside from maybe picking some stocks that, you know, <laughs> retrospectively after this whole, crisis. you're pragmatist. Yeah. yeah, there you go. 
No, I think to answer your question, it would probably be to honestly move to Utah sooner. For anyone that's outside of state that's listening to this thing, I mean, Utah is a very open, open-handed, very collaborative community. And so don't get me wrong. I love Texas. I love the people there. I love the food still. Um, uh, yeah, I think one of my first day I lose, I actually introduced myself from being the great, part of the greatest country on earth. And I said Texas. But Utah is a place of just really um, strong community. Tons of startups up over here. Um, it's really where I got introduced into UX. Um, it, got, it was where I fell in love with being able to make products. And so being able to move up here sooner and being able to speed up my development, I think would have been, uh, been great. Yeah, you think you could have got into UX sooner if you made the leap earlier? Oh, absolutely. Um, it was something I felt like I was doing for um, quite a while, but not necessarily knowing that I was doing UX. So being able to have some you know, mentors earlier on, I think would have been able to um, speed up that trajectory. Yeah, for sure. Like mentors, I mean, helped me find UX. I mean, for like such a new profession, you know, like if it weren't for mentors, I definitely wouldn't have found my program at school and stuff. So cool. Well, Sean, thanks for coming on the podcast. All right. Stay healthy. Absolutely. You do the same. Take care. Thanks. Hey listeners. Thanks again for listening to another episode of the way of product design. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful. And if you haven't already subscribe to the podcast, And if you want to help the show grow, please leave a review on Apple or Google's podcast platforms. As always, thanks for listening. You have a good one.